0: Well, let's stand and take our Bibles, please. We're going to go to the Old Testament book of Exodus. The Old Testament book of Exodus. If you find Genesis, Exodus is right after that. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. Members, if you can look around you, if someone next to you doesn't have a Bible, a King James Version Bible, would you share your Bible with them and make sure they have their place uh, there with us as we read the scriptures this morning? Exodus chapter 32. Be sure when you come this evening, again, try to get here at 4.30. If you have a party with you, they all need to enter together with you to be at the same table. We cannot reserve seating because of the full capacity that we have. And it's kind of first come, first serve. Please help us with that. Be much in prayer for that. It's going to be a great service this evening, a great banquet. And we want God to get all the honor and glory from that this evening. Genesis 32, go with me to verse 19. Verse 19. Say amen if you're there. Amen. You sound a little sleepy. How many feel sleepy this morning? I feel like you're, you wish you are in bed right now with the covers over your head. Don't you just feel like that? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to take the covers off right now, okay? We want you to just enjoy the service and God to work. Exodus 32, verse 19. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands, and break them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire. He ground it into powder, and strode it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, "What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them?" And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And I said unto them, whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it me. Then I cast into the fire, and there came out this calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. I want you to notice some phrases this morning. There's a lot I want to give you, but I want you to underline just a couple for, for just a moment. Would you notice in verse 19, the Bible says that Moses saw the calf, the golden calf. Would you notice in verse 20, it says he took the calf and he burned it in the fire. Would you notice where our key text is coming from, verse 21, Moses, out of perplexity, and frustration as well as righteous indignation said to Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought, and underline his phrase, so great a sin upon them? And would you notice, you go down a little bit further, if you go to verse 26, Moses asked the question, Who is on the Lord's side? Did that focus your attention, verse 21, on something that's very, very, uh, that should burden our hearts? And should just strike through at us at a a concern that Moses saw in the camp consisting of perhaps three million Jews as they were waiting for Moses to return. And the Bible says he saw so great a sin. Father, we pray this morning for this precious congregation, a congregation made up of people, the majority of which are saved. They know Christ as Savior. And even beyond that, a good majority of them are saved and baptized. Through their baptism, they identify with this local New Testament church and its doctrines and belief and practices. And through their baptism, Lord, they identify with the Lord Jesus Christ his death, burial, and resurrection. And we thank you this morning, God, for those who are today who are just regular attendees and just to love to be in this church and to worship you and to be edified and built up in the word of your grace. And Father, we're on a we're on level playing field this morning. We're all in the same field. We're all at the same, we're, out, we're all at ground zero right now. And we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us. We pray that you would move us out of our uh, lethargy and perhaps indifference and complacency and perhaps even the sin of lukewarmness. And I pray that, God, you would help us to see uh, in this passage of Scripture what Moses saw. And I pray that you'll help us in seeing the remedy for this situation that's found in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray this morning for any who are not 100% certain that they're saved and going to heaven. I pray their hearts would be pricked and moved about their need for Christ. And in a very special way today, I pray you'll be glorified in our hearts. Move us with the spirit of worship to you. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. You may be seated. Now, for those of you new to the church, this is your first time here, I want to say welcome to Heritage Baptist Church. We're delighted you're here today to worship the Lord with us. We pray it will not be the last time that you're here. If you're a returning visitor, thank you for being here. We're praying that the Lord will do a great work in your heart. And I want to thank you for being a member and attendee of our church on a regular basis. And uh, we're asking God to do a great work in our hearts. We're in a series, this is part three, of a mini-series that I'm doing entitled So Great. If you do a, take a concordance and look up the phrase, so great, it, it's mentioned several times throughout the Old and New Testament, and when we think of the term so great, I've used this example in previous weeks, but I'll use it again, we think about something that is so monumental, and, it, and it, just, it, it just kind of it blows our mind, and it kind of just works in our in such a way we look at it and we say, so great. And I think of, I think of uh, those mountain expeditioners who have trained themselves to prepare to climb up all the way up to Mount, the top of Mount Everest. Our goal is to get there. Not everyone has made it all the way to the top of Mount Everest. It's a very difficult trek. If nothing else, just the danger of avalanches and the danger of the, of the, uh, the thinness of air and lack of oxygen and many other things that happen, diseases and sicknesses. But for someone who can make it all the way to the top, there's this feeling of exhilaration as they stand at the peak and they look across the valley and just to think that all the training was worth it and to get there, probably the words that come out of their mouth is, this is so great. Or perhaps someone who's visited the Grand Canyon and has beheld the wonder of creation has seen the grandeur of all of that that's done and they look at that and from the height there at the cliff, they look over, look everything and they say, this is so great. Or perhaps a young person who has completed their finals and uh, they've done well in high school and they get the letter of acceptance from their universities they've applied to and they look at it, they throw the letters in the air, they're excited they say, this is so great. Or brass like many of us will have at Thanksgiving time and Christmas time as we assemble together with family and have sumptuous meals and probably eat more than we should eat and uh, make all these excuses for eating more and overindulging. At the time we're finished eating we'll say, this was so great. Or maybe tonight after the Thanksgiving banquet we'll end tonight by saying, this was so great. It was a great time of God's people working and assembling together and having this participation in the work of God. And maybe even so great to say we're thankful that uh, unsaved family members that have come, that they got saved tonight. And you pray with me for a large number of people to get saved. Amen? And we've got over 150 people that we know of right now, we've identified, who are coming that may not be saved, do not know Jesus Christ, your Savior. And bearing in mind, this is falling right on the heels of our Friend Day, which was two weeks ago, and we saw over 30 people saved during the Friend Day emphasis, and, and uh, lots of, about over hundreds of visitors for that event that we ministered to. And we're just praying for God to, to use this emphasis, seeing people come to Christ. But you know that the phrase "so great" just speaks about something that's very wonderful to us. And we started out on Friend Day by by a message found in Hebrews 2:3, where he says, uh, "How should we escape if we neglect so great salvation?" And uh, last week we we were looking at uh, Hebrews 12:1. We he talked about so great a class out of witnesses, and this morning we will look at a phrase that is a little disturbing, but we cannot overlook it. And it's the, it's the phrase, What did this people to move you? He said, What did this people in verse 21 that thou has brought so great a sin? Not about you, but when I read that, that pauses causes me to think, What was so great a sin? What is so great a sin? What does it mean to have so great a sin? When we think about sin, sin is any act of disobedience to God. Now, the Bible uses many different words. When you read your Bible, it uses many different words to to help us understand sin. For instance, the word sin in itself means to miss the mark. We develop an entire doctrine around the word sin. It's the word hamartia. Hamartia we call hamartiology, which describes the doctrine of sin. And sin in itself means to, to miss the mark. We have the idea of an archer who has his bow and arrow, and he's aiming the arrow at a target, and the arrow doesn't make it. It misses the mark. And that's where you don't, where you don't make it. You have the idea of a student who has tried to achieve their best to get into a, a school of their choice, but they didn't make it. Or perhaps someone who's trying to get a certain job, and they didn't make it. It's missing the mark. There's the word sin. You find in your Bible the word transgression. And transgression comes from a word which we understand from real estate. It has the idea of a boundary line being made, and and trespass. And, and, and passing, if you would, or crossing that boundary line. It's a forbidden tra- uh, to cross a forbidden line. And that's what the word transgression means, to cross a forbidden line. And that's the idea of illegally going over a boundary line, a line that you should not go over. Or we think of the word iniquity. Sin means to miss the mark. Transgression means to cross a forbidden line. But then I think about the word iniquity. The word iniquity is a very strong word. In fact, in the Old Testament, we find it translated as well as in the New Testament. We get the word depraved from that, or depravity. And depraved or depravity is about on Wednesday night when I preached a message entitled The Falling Away and talked about the signs of our times and we mentioned on Wednesday night about things that are happening in our legal system and things happening in our society and things happening with laws being passed and things happening right before our eyes right now that is seeing a very a, a, a shift away from the word of God and a shift away from morality and what's right and a shift towards sin quite honestly we see the word iniquity uh, describing that. It's, it's a word that describes, very strongly describes uh, the bondage and strongholds Sin has on a person 's life, for instance, someone who has a very very difficult time uh, that it, with, with uh, drinking alcohol they 're they're, they're under bondage there, and they, we call them a drunkard in the Bible, and, the, and society kind of docks it up and calls you an alcoholic, but the Bible calls you what it is you 're called a drunkard there or someone is under that stronghold or someone 's under the stronghold of, of drug addiction or some kind of substance addiction that has them there, or someone that 's under the, the the control of some kind of a sin there we call that, we call that situation being under that bondage in the book of Romans. The word depraved has, has given different definitions. In Romans chapter 1, we find that there's a phrase that says uh, that a person has no desire to retain God in one's knowledge. That would be depravity. It means being vain in your imagination. It's a sinner's foolish heart that is darkened. It is someone so sinful, the truth of God has been changed into a lie. And so we find the word iniquity or depraved being used here. And then there's other words like the word unrighteous. Unrighteous describes how we all are. None of us are righteous. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. Nobody's righteous. All of us are unrighteous in that respect. There's none righteous, no, not one. Righteousness means to be just like God. None of us are like God. We do not have sinless perfection like God. We are not morally perfect like God. We are not holy like God. So we must understand, there words like that describe how we are. And of course, there's other words that the Bible uses like trespass and offenses and wickedness. And this morning, we, we want to look at this phrase here that kind of incorporates everything we just said. He talks about, what did these people do to you that, they, that you led them in committing so great a sin. We want to look at the subject. What is it? What does it mean? What did God mean to have so great a sin? I want you to notice first of all if we want to look at chapter 32 verses 1 to 6, what you notice first of all the cause of sin. I want you to, to just go back with me for a minute and think with me about the cause of sin. In chapter 32 and I'm going to give you just a recap this morning because there's a lot of passages here. First of all, we have two two things. Number 1, we see Moses. Number 2, we see the people of Israel, okay? Now Moses as we get to chapter 32, from about chapter 19 to about chapter 31, Moses is on top of a mountain. That mountain is called Mount Sinai. We get from chapter 19 uh, there until chapter 31. We are given a description of what's going on up there. God has summoned Moses to this mountain, this Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountaintop. He's there alone with God. At the base of that summit is Joshua that's there with him. Joshua was not allowed to go all the way to the top. And God came down on a cloud on that mountain. And God met with Moses. And there on that cloud, there on that mountain, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And in fact, it was so important. The Bible tells us in Exodus 31, that by the finger of God, God ca- carved out two tablets of stone and he wrote out the Ten Commandments. Five on one tablet, five on the other. He was given the literal written word of God. He was given the Ten Commandments that you find written in Exodus chapter 20. He was given the Ten Commandments. And then from there, God went over a number of laws. He gave him uh, legislation. He gave him civil laws and criminal laws. He gave him laws in terms of how, from a societal standpoint, how they were to conduct themselves. What were they to do if someone got hurt immediately? God had had all this all figured out so they could have a civil society among themselves. And then as we get into it we find that God would move from that into their their spiritual life. God talked about the corporate worship of the people of God and God gave them the the idea of the tabernacle, a place where God's people would worship God and a place where sacrifices would be made and ceremonies would be done and those sacrifices would be an offering for sin and the dedication of their lives and it would involve the entire uh, entire multitude of the Jews and would establish special calendar days on their calendar that they would observe God. All this is going on. Moses is on the top. Moses is on the top on the mountain for 40 days with God. He's alone with the Lord. Now God had told Moses, you entrust the people with Aaron. Aaron, his brother, was his spokesman for the most part. And Aaron was entrusted to guard over the people and to watch them. And so Aaron's Aaron's job for 40 days, for 40 consecutive days and night, was to keep things going together. To make sure the people were looking forward, the anticipation to Moses' return and looking forward to the word of God that would be given to them. But we find here, as we get to chapter 32, something very disturbing. Notice chapter 32, verse 1. It says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron, and they said unto him up, make us gods which shall go before us for us to, for this Moses the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt we what not has what become of him. Now notice what happens here. They get to about the 39th or 40th day and the people are impatient. The people are tired of, of, of waiting for Moses. You see when Moses was away they felt like well Aaron's good but he's not Moses. And the people were becoming restless and the people were becoming impatient. As we get into the message I'll show you this, this morning. The people actually became very idle in their ways. They were not paying attention what was going on. They got their eyes off of the Lord, and they got their eyes on themselves. And the people now started to have a revolt. They had an insurrection. And they go to Aaron, who's in charge. They said, Aaron, we're in charge now. They said, Aaron, we're going to tell you what to do. You're not going to tell us what to do. Now I'm going to tell you as we get into this, Aaron was part of the problem. Aaron didn't keep things hot. Aaron didn't keep things going. Aaron didn't keep the people focused, as he probably should have during that time. But albeit that matter, the people should have known better. They should have known that Moses was eventually going to come down. But they got impatient. They weren't, they they, they didn't want to wait for Moses anymore. And they, in the, in the matter of worship, they said, what we want you to do, Aaron, is get up and make us gods." They said, we were thinking about Egypt. We're thinking about what we came out of. We want you to make us gods like what we worshiped before. We want you to lead us into a different worship. The people sinned against God. They spoke against Moses. They spoke against God. They spoke against Aaron. The people sinned. Now, when we look at this, we have to ask ourselves a question, what is the cause of sin? Why did the people rebel against Aaron? Why were the people murmuring? against Moses? Why did the people choose to go back into idol worship like they did back in Egypt? What is the cause of sin? Why do we sin? How does sin come about? Why are we all sinners? I mean, that's, those are good questions we have to ask ourselves. Why do we sin? Why are we all sinners? How does sin come about? And no matter who you are, and no matter how good you may be, the fact of the matter is all of us are sinners. All of us have unrighteousness. All of us have a tendency to stray away from God. All of us can point to time and place when we sin sinned against God, we've sinned against others. Now, we sit here today and we're very decent looking and we're very courteous looking and we're very polite looking. We put on our Sunday clothes and we look very well and we smell our best and we look our best. But deep down in our heart, the Bible describes our heart as deceitfully wicked. Who can even know it? We're not even to trust our own heart. The Bible describes our heart as being evil and filled with evil thoughts. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the cause of sin? Would you notice this number one? It's because of our unrighteous condition. Our unrighteous condition. When you were born, you inherited traits from your mother and your father, your biological father, and your biological mother. You receive their eyes. You receive their genetics. You receive their hair. You receive their body makeup. You receive their body chemistry. It all comes about, it all unfolds as we get older. And the same can be said about our spiritual life. That we're all born with a sinful nature. Sin comes about by the fact we're all born sinners. We've all inherited sin from our ancestor Adam. Adam was the first man that was made. Adam and his wife Eve sinned against God. The Bible tells us in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All of us are born with a sinful nature. David said this in Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I'm not saying, not trying to be rude or insulting to you, but I want to tell you this morning, no matter how good you may be, no matter how, how upright you may be, all of us have sinned. We were born with sin. We were shapen in iniquity, and in sin did our mother conceive us. In Psalm 58, 3, the Bible says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born. That's that's kind of interesting. We go astray as soon as we be born speaking lies. Now it doesn't matter what country you came from. It doesn't matter whether your country had some worship of God or no worship of God. The fact of the matter is we all know that we have a nature that's sinful. It's because of our unrighteous condition. But we see something else. Look into Exodus 32. As this passage of Scripture is unfolding, we see something else. We see how sin comes out of us. We see that we have an unrighteous condition, but we see sin comes out of us because of unrestrained cravings. We have unrestrained cravings. Cravings are desires, strong desires. The Bible uses the word lust to describe those strong desires. We have desires that if we're not, if we're not careful, that can take control of us. And lust, are lusting, if you would, is a desire that's very strong, and very that compels us to do something we should not do. The outworking of sin in us begins with our cravings and desires. Would you notice James chapter 1 verses 13 to 15 and if you have notes and if you picked up the notes on the way in it's in your notes. If not turn to James chapter 1 notice verses 13 to 15. James took some time to describe to us, to you and I, how these unrestrained cravings or lusts occur. Would you listen to it very carefully? Would you read along with me? Notice he said in verse 13 Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. Well, number one, don't say God made me sin. God did not make you sin. And don't say God gave me the temptation. God did not tempt you. God allowed you to be tempted, but God didn't tempt you. Hey, listen this morning. We need to get away from this blaming aspect. We're blaming everybody for our faults and our condition of what we did. Don't blame God. Don't blame your spouse. Don't blame your dog. Don't blame the pastor. Don't blame the church. Don't blame your husband. Don't blame your wife. We have to stop blaming God. And taking responsibility for ourselves. Amen? And so notice here he says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. Now, you may feel a little bit uncomfortable this morning, but I want you to understand something today God did not tempt you, and God did not make you sin. God is not the author of sin, God is holy. Be ye holy, he said, even as I am holy. And then in verse 14, But every man is tempted when he's drawn away, when he's pulled away, when he's lured away of his own lust. Did you understand that phrase? His own lust. Everybody here this morning has his own lust. You have your own lust pressure points. You have pressure points that because of maybe what you've been exposed to, or maybe because of weaknesses in your life, or because of lack of supervision in your life, or lack of accountability in your life, you have your own lusts that pull you away. And I'm going to be real transparent. Men, for most men maybe many men in this room today, perhaps your own lust is the lust of pornography. And perhaps your own lust is the lust of lust. Is, your lust is lustful thinking. You cannot look on a woman without having pure thoughts. Your thoughts are impure. You see a certain woman and you just kind of turn that way and your, your thought process is turning. Or if you spend excess time in pornography, pornography has taken control of you and it's translated itself into lust. Or maybe you're someone that you're very materialistic and something you see you have, you're composed, you're, you're compelled, composed to buy those things. Lust, every person, every man and woman is drawn or pulled away of his own lust. And the Bible says he or she is enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Do you understand what's going on this morning? Our unrestrained cravings lead to sin. When lust is not controlled, when lust is not kept in balance, lust leads to sin. Lust leads to you you and I crossing that forbidden line. It leads to you and I allowing that depraved nature we have to kick into action and to be drawn away. We are tempted to sin when we're drawn away of our own lust. Enticed means we bite into the apple. We take a bite into it even though we should not. We've taken the bait. Those of you who go fishing know the importance of having some kind of a lure or some kind of a bait. And you've had a good day of fishing when the fish latches onto the lure or latches onto the bait. And Satan, Satan Satan has his apples out there. And Satan has his lure and his bait out there. And he's baited it to entrap you and to stare you. I may remind you today, as Dr. John R. Rice used to say, all of Satan's apples have worms inside of them. And when he gets you there, he gets you to take that bite. And then when you take that bite, you realize, and you've taken that zip, you realize that you've sinned against God. Sin occurs when we are enticed. When we surrender to the craving, we let the craving take control of us, and we sin. There's the first drink. There's that first smoke. There's the There's the stolen goods. There's the angry striking out. There's the lustful contact and crossover. It all happens there. And then notice something else this morning. When we think about the cause of sin, it's because of our unrighteous condition. And it's because of unrestrained craving. But I remind you this morning that the cause of sin is because of a universal curse. Sin is a curse on every man. Sin is a curse on every woman. We're cursed. Listen, the worst thing to find out is you get to be older. If you get diagnosed with early stages of cancer, the doctors will want, and hopefully they'll do this, they'll want to do genetic testing. They'll want to find out, did you get this? Did you get a bad gene from your parents or your grandparents? Is there a history of certain things? I think of a good friend of mine by the name of, of Dr. Dan Reed, Pastor Dan Reed. Somehow, of you remember Pastor Reed? Pastor Reed preached here in the past. He was a favorite Bible preacher we had in our church there. And Brother Reed had a condition known as Fabry's disease. He's a very rare genetic condition. At age 48, he started to get worn out very easily, and he was wondering what's going on. At 48, you've still got a lot of gusto and strength inside you. And they found out as they did a battery test that all of his artery, his heart arteries were clogged, and he had to have quadruple heart bypass, and he had a long recovery. And they were thinking, how did a 40-year-old man get like that? He, didn't, he never smoked, he never drank, he never cussed, he never did any of those kind of things. He didn't live a bad lifestyle, he ate very healthy. And they started doing some genetic testing, and they found out my good friend, Brother, brother Reed, that he, that he had this, fibrous condition fibrous condition if you have this fibrous disease is a terrible disease basically your body fights itself your immune system is fighting itself there are a lot of immune dis- system disorders that a lot of us will get that basically your body fights against itself and he started to recognize that basically he started to have organ failure and it wasn't long after that he started having other things happen and then he started having kidney failure I preached for him twice in a three-year period of time during that period of time his kidneys went from being hundred percent effective down to 10 percent effective to eventually the last time I preached for for him that basically he was on dialysis there. Well, recently Pastor Reed went home to be with the Lord. The Lord took him home. They had a memorial service for him about two weeks ago in Atlanta, Georgia for him. But I'm saying today, he inherited that. He did some genetic testing. And they found out that he had ancestors and family members who had that and was passed down. I remind you this morning that sin is the curse on the human race. The Bible says this in 1 Kings eight forty six. for there's no man that sinneth not. Listen this morning, you might be a good person, but you've sinned. And you might say, well, I'm not as bad as somebody else. It doesn't matter. We have all sinned. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. What an interesting thought. God told Isaiah... All righteousness that we have are like a filthy rag. It's like a dirty rag there. It's like it's like a very dirty cloth there. And then the Bible says in Romans 3:23, "For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." My friend, this morning, sin is a universal curse on every person. We have to understand there is a spiritual defect in our lives. And as we get to Exodus chapter 32, we see the spiritual defect coming out in the lives of the people. Oswald Chambers, a great preacher of days gone by, said this: "Sin is blatant mutiny against God." Think about that. Sin is blatant mutiny against God. And either sin or God must die in my life. We see the cause of sin, but quickly this morning, which you notice, secondly, the corruption of sin. Now, sin is bad, but we have to understand, what does sin do to me? We answered the question, where did sin come from? How did I get sin? But now we have to ask the question, why is sin so bad? What does sin do to me? Now, I want to help you this morning today, because sometimes some of us don't even know we may have heart disease. We don't even realize we have a silent killer. We don't even realize that perhaps our, our, our carotid arteries are plugging up, or perhaps the arteries in our heart are plugged Up or maybe you had some indulgences in the past that are not very good. You may have an aortic valve right now that may be at risk of exploding, and you might be at risk of an aortic valve aneurysm. There, I mean, whatever it may be, these are very dangerous things that can happen. It's dangerous to have a stroke. It's dangerous to find out that you've had cancer in your later stages and you didn't have it diagnosed early. It's dangerous to find out that your heart arteries are clogged. It's dangerous for you to find out that your carotid arteries are clogged, and if you don't do something about it quickly, that you you're at risk of a stroke or heart attack there. And notice these people here. We see as we get into this we see the corruption of sin sin works like a plague sin everyone is affected by it. everyone that everyone that is around it is affected by it. notice in verses 4 to 6 we see this corruption the people moved Aaron to, 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 to commit sin. And they said, we want to worship the old idol god. You see, the people who had been idol per se, I-D-L-E. They had been sitting around idol. And the worship of God had been forsaken. And the holiness of God had been disrespected for a period of time. And so they started sitting around. And they started talking among themselves. And they gossiped. And they started complaining. And they started saying, well, where's Moses? I wonder if Moses is going to come back. And they just they, they respected Aaron, but they didn't respect Aaron. And they basically said, you know, it's kind of like the old cliche, when the cats away the mouse play, And they said, you know what, Aaron, we've just been thinking here for a little bit. We've been thinking about the gods we worship down in Egypt. And they had totally forgotten all the plagues that God sent upon them. And every one of those plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians was God's statement of, uh, against, of antagonism against all, the, all the, the worship of false gods that went on in Egypt. Every one of them. And, uh, God, and they said, well, you know, we've been thinking about one of the gods in Egypt, several of the gods in Egypt, and we want to worship those gods again. Deep in their mind, they're thinking about what they saw in Egypt. They're thinking about what they saw in the world and they wanted to worship those things. And so they said, up and make us gods like as what we had in Egypt there. And so he says, okay, I'll tell you what you do. All of you have gold. You borrowed gold from your, your neighbors. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have, we're going to take a general offering. And this offering means everyone comes to, to, to donate their gold. Now this was gold they borrowed from the Egyptian neighbors. I will tell you as I read that passage of Scripture, that was the best offering ever taken in Scripture. Everybody gave. Everybody gave Sassanthi. And these, all these people plucked off these earrings. Now somebody reads that. They'll say, oh, that must mean men. it's okay for men to wear earrings. That's not what it's saying there. The men just conveniently put it on, but they should not have put it on. And they plucked up those earrings together, men and women alike, children alike. They took these gold earrings, and these were huge earrings. These, this was pure gold, and they put it in this huge pot. And I want you to imagine, 3 million people making a donation of gold earrings. I mean, not 14 karat gold. 14 I'm talking about 24 karat gold. They donate this offering. I mean, they donate all this gold. And Aaron takes it, he says, I have in mind something that you'll all like, something that you'll identify with, something that will kind of entice you and move you to, to a, a idol worship. And so he concocted in his mind, well, boil this down, and then out of it I will shape and carve a golden calf. Now, one of the great gods that the Egyptians worshipped back in that time, and the, all the Israelites were influenced by, was the worship of a bull god that they had. A god that had, the, a god that had the head of a bull on a man. And they worshipped this god. And this god, this bull god, was, was a, a symbol of freedom. Fertility, Because wherever there was idol worship among pagan nations, there would also be immoral practices that would happen and things of that nature. And it was passed on from, from, uh, from culture to culture to culture. And so Aaron thought, I know something the people enjoy. We'll make a golden calf out of it, just like we saw in Egypt. We'll make a calf out of this. And so somewhere along the way, he took an engraving tool, the Bible says, something the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, when God gave them the Ten Commandments, you're not to have an engraving tool in your hand. But he took an engraving tool, and he took this gold, and as it started to cool, he started to shape it and mold it and I can't imagine that Aaron was very artistic like all the other Israelites he probably had some help along the way they were very artistic and in their mind they envisioned this large golden calf and if you read further on this notice what happens here the Bible says here, they gave the earrings in verse 3 and then verse 4, it says, and he, re, and he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and after he had made it a molten calf, he said, they, they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The people resorted back to idol worship. Now idol worship was the breaking of the first two commandments God gave. I want to remind you, when the ten commandments were given in Exodus chapter 20, that it was given to Moses and given to the People, there was a there was, if you would, a church meeting they had, a congregational meeting, and uh, Moses went over all of the ten commandments. I wish I had time to go over them, but the first two dealt with having no other gods before them, they were not to worship any other gods. God knew their hearts, and God knew their propensity that they would be lured back into idol worship very quickly if they were not very careful. And God entrusting the people to Aaron wanted Aaron to keep order with them, spiritual order, that their hearts would not go lusting after those gods, but they did anyway and Aaron felt the same way and Aaron gave in to that sin and so we see this idol worship here that's coming out there's idolatry and then we notice something else here would you notice this here the Bible says in verse 6, they rose up early on the morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Now the very thing that God had told uh, Moses, you're to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings before me. These were daily sacrifices. Burnt offerings representing, representing, if you would, the dedication of the life of a believer. It consumed the entire sacrifice. And peace offerings, if you would, that symbolized their peace in the relation with God. They were saying, these gods, we're dedicating ourselves to these gods. And we feel that we have peace among ourselves. And peace with these gods because we've made these gods. They were doing everything opposite of what God told them to do. And the Bible says this, the people rose up the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now as you study this passage of scripture, I wish I tried to develop it, but here's what it basically means. The people got to the place where they felt very comfortable with that kind of worship. They felt very comfortable they were not being confronted with their sin. You see, contemporary worship appeals to the flesh because contemporary worship doesn't confront you about your sin. And contemporary worship doesn't tell you you need to get saved. And contemporary worship brings Jesus down to the level of man. Listen, we're not to bring Jesus down to the level of man We're to bring man up to the level of Jesus Christ. We have to understand this morning that they got to be very comfortable. They sat down and they played. The Bible was talking about there that they started frolicking around. And we read later on, they made themselves naked. They took off their clothes. They became immoral. And the very same thing that they came out of in Egypt, they went back to practicing those same things. I mean, with things that pagan people did and lost people did. But, it wasn't, but the people of God should not have resorted to that. And the Bible says they rose up to drink and play. Literally, if you study this very passage very, 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 uh, very thoroughly, you wind up seeing they basically had the equivalent of a spiritual orgy going on. So gross, so debauched, if you would, so wicked in their ways. And these people are doing such things like that. When we get down a little bit further... And they were doing things like that. And the people were drinking and thinking things of that nature. And the Bible says they were stiff-necked. Notice verse 9. It says they were stiff-necked. To be stiff-necked means they became uh, they became uh, hardened and cruel and curlish and harsh. Their hearts were hardening against God, if you would. And the Bible says that these people had gotten to a place where they had corrupted themselves. Because notice in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt. Which you notice is they have corrupted themselves. Now, underline that verse and make a notation. That's how God saw their sin. And that's how God sees our sin. We've corrupted ourselves. Lust, when it is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And God gets a little stronger than that. Look at verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, he confronted him as a leader, What did this people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? I want you to think with me for a minute, God's description of this corruption. So great a sin. Brother and sister in Christ, friend worshiping God with us this morning, sin is not trite with God. Sin is not little with God. There's no such thing as little sins. It is a great sin. What did this people that thou hast done so great is sin. Listen. It was so great it blinded them. It was so great it corrupted them. It was so great the people had no shame. It, had, it was so great they had no sense. It was so great they became hardened to God. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher of days gone by, said about little sins. He said, he, said, he entitled this, Sin is not a little thing. He said, Christian... Beware lest thou think lightly of sin. Take heed lest thou fall little by little. Sin is a little thing? Is it not a poison? Who knows its deadlines? Sin a little thing? Do not the little foxes spoil the grapes? Doth not the tiny coral itself build a rock which wrecks the navy? Sin a little thing? It girded the Redeemer's head with thorns and pierced his heart. Could you weigh the least sin in the scales of eternity? You would fly from him. Sin is terrible. Sin is not little. Sin is grievous to the heart of God. Sin is grievous in the eyes of God. He said, What did this people, thou hast committed so great a sin? You see, beloved, this morning, it's so important that we keep our hearts tender and we keep our hearts soft and we keep our hearts teachable so that every time any word of sin is mentioned, any sin is mentioned, that it would strike at our heart, that we'd even ask the question, Is it I, Lord? Have I done that, Lord? That when the mirror of God's word, we look in the mirror of God's word, we don't walk away and forget what we saw, but we We see ourselves exactly as God sees us. And God had to tell Moses, Do you see this people? They have committed so great a sin. These people have corrupted themselves. And we have to understand this morning, there's the corruption of sin. John Henry Jowd, another famous Baptist preacher, said this, Sin is a blasting presence, and every fine power shrinks and withers in the destructive heat. Every spiritual delicacy delicacy succumbs to its malignant touch. Sin impairs the sight and works towards blindness. Sin benumbs the hearing and tends to make men deaf. Sin perverts the taste, causing men to confound the sweet with the bitter and the bitter with the sweet. Sin hardens the touch and eventually renders a man past feeling. All these are scriptural analogies, and their common significance appears to be this. Sin blocks and chokes the fine senses of our spirit. By sin we are desensitized, rendering imperceptive, and the range of our cor- correspondence is diminished. Sin creates callicity, it hoofs the spirit and so reduces the area of our exposure to sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, and friend here today, worship me God. the sin that's corrupting in all of our lives. Well, we see the cause of sin. Where does sin come from? How do we sin? And then we look at the corruption of sin. What does sin do to us? But you notice thirdly, the consequences of sin. Look at verse 10. In verse 9, God told Moses, and you have to imagine, Moses is very grief-stricken at these words from God. I've seen this people. By the way, may I say this morning, there's nothing God does not see. All things are evident before the eyes of God. Behold, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, God said, let me alone. In other words, he's saying, Moses, don't pray for them. Moses, don't intervene for them. Moses, let me do what I need to do. He said, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. Sometimes people that are not familiar with the Bible, they're very familiar with the Bible, they'll look at the book of Joshua and they'll see all of these nations that Joshua had to destroy. And they'll say, what kind of God is this? I remind you, God was hot against his people too. And right here we see in Exodus chapter 32, God was very angry with a righteous indignation. He said, let my wrath wax hot on them. I want you to understand, today, there's a consequence to sin. The wrath of God must be poured out on sin. The wrath of God is the judgment of God. Yes, God is a God of love. And yes, God is a God of mercy. But He's also a God who's righteous. And He's a God of judgment. And God must judge sin. And the Bible says here in verse verse 10, if you would, He says, Let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. The consequence of sin, if you'll write this down, the consequence of sin, as we read through this passage of Scripture, is death. In verse 10, He says, Let Let me consume them in my wrath. Go down to verse 27. To verse 26. In verse 26, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Because God had to execute wrath against the sinners. He said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And the Bible says, All the sons of Levi, men that were priests, men that were set apart for the, the service of God, men that had not corrupted themselves with the rest of the people. The Bible says, All the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said to them, That is Moses, he said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. He says, This is not my pronouncement, this is God's pronouncement. This is not my message, this is God's message. He He said, thus saith the Lord. May I say this morning, when we come to church, please do not treat a message that's thus saith Alan Fong, or thus saith whoever the guest preacher is. It is always thus saith the Lord. It is God's word that is holy. It is God's word that changes not. It is God's word that's forever settled. This is not something historically we look at and say, well, that was historical. No, it's not only historical. It's relevant to today because the same God is the same yesterday, today, and forever for all of our lives. And so we look at over here, God said in verse 27, And he said to them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Say to the son of, sons of Levi, Put every man his sword by his side, And go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Which you notice is, God said there was a consequence for this corrupting sin. There's a consequence for every sin. He said you've got to go out to the camp, and you've got to slay them. You've got to kill them. There's a righteous indignation. I know we don't practice that today, but because these were Jews, and people that were given the Ten Commandments, and they knew they were not supposed to worship an idol God, and in the face of God, while well, Moses is up on the mountain with God, and God looking down upon them, they make this golden calf, and they undress them, Themselves. And you think about how great his sin was. They dressed, they undressed themselves, and they were naked before God, and they were dancing to music, and they had some form of music. The Bible says that when Joshua heard the music, he said it sounded like he sounded like the sound of war. And he said, No, it's not the sound of war, it's the those of them that sing. And it's just a clashing music. It was an awful music. You might say it was the very f- first rock concert and rap concert that they had in scripture there. And it was a concert that was not that was was, unde- was defiling, and a concert that God was not pleased with. It was a music that was an uncertain sound that God did not agree with there and God said to them they must be punished he says he said the, the sons of Levi put their put their swords on and he says i need you to slay every man for the wages of sin is death separation from god in verse 27 they put it on in the verse 28 the children of Levi did according to the word of moses And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. (laughs) Two brothers, ages eight and four, were talking about Adam and Eve. The older brother asked his younger brother, he says, hey, kid, how did Adam and Eve die? The younger brother, not really being totally familiar with the story, said, they ate bad fruit. That's what killed them, you know. And I remind you today that sin is bad fruit that will kill you. Sin is bad fruit that will defile you and kill you. James 1.15, when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. The Wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, besold all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the, of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. So great a sin results in the wrath of God upon your soul and your spiritual destiny. It only takes one sin to condemn a sinner. Physical death is a separation of the soul from the body. But spiritual death is when there's a separation of the soul and spends all of eternity in hell because of its rejection of God as Savior. Revelation 20 verses 14 and 15 tells us about the spiritual death The spiritual separation. Listen to me. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When you were born, listen to me this morning. What I'm going to tell you right now bypasses all religions and belief systems. When you were born, God has a book called the book of life. The moment you were born, your name was recorded in that book of life. In fact, you go to Psalms 139. David describes, he says, in thy book, my members are written. Everything about how God created you is in that book. But along the way, as we go through life, God has every right to blot names out of that book. Look down a little bit further with me and look at Exodus chapter 32. Moses is praying for the people. Would you notice verses 31 to 33? And Moses returned unto the Lord and he said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. You say, well, what was their problem? Well, the problem was idolatry. Their sin was idolatry. Their sin was materialism. Their sin was that they stole an offering that belonged to God their sin was they were covetous, because where there's idolatry, there's covetousness. And where there's covetousness, there's, there's idolatry. There's on and on and on. There's numerous numbers of sins that are going on. But the worst is, not, is the breaking of commandments number 1, 2, and 10, because they, they sinned against God and making these graven images, and making this image of gold that they, had, they went back to their old ways and were worshiping that. And we can translate it down to your, your time and my time right now. I mean, those are gods that we worship. These are gods of materialism. The gods of education, the gods of money, the gods of possessiveness, the gods of lust. I mean, all of these different things that we worship there and the gods of education there. And so they send all these things. And he says, and then Moses is praying, these people have sinned a great sin. Notice verse 32. Yet now, he said, if thou wilt forgive their sin. Now he's praying for them. And if not, he said, blot me, I pray thee out of thy book, which thou hast written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whosoever sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Watch this now. This book of life, everyone starts off the same. Every one of us when we're born, our name is placed in God's book of life. But God reserves the right if you go through your life without your sins forgiven, without coming under the blood of Jesus Christ for the covering of your sin, as I'll speak about in a moment. Without repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus Christ as God, the moment you die, your name is blotted out of the book of life. And Moses understood that theology. Moses was a great theologian. Moses said, God, this is so heinous in what they've done. He said, God, if you would, blot my name out of the book of life. He said, let me die for them. He said, let me take their place. Lord, if you would, blot my name out of that book so these people can live. God said, well, these people have sinned. If they don't repent and get right with me, their name will be blotted out of the book of life. Now watch this in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The second death is for all of eternity. Yes, then notice verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Who's that? Everyone whose name is blotted out. Because they did not accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They did not repent of their sins. They didn't come the blood sprinkled way. They didn't come by way of the Calvary Road. They didn't come by way of the cross. They didn't come by way of the Bible way coming to know Jesus Christ. To save. God says their name be blotted. out. And Moses understood that. There's the consequences of sin. What do you do? Man, that's a downer. That's discouraging. Yeah, Pastor, we have the Thanksgiving banquet tonight. Happy Thanksgiving. You just preach about so great a sin. Well, I've got good news for you this morning as we close. Because we have to see the cause of sin. And we have to see the corruption of sin. We have to see the consequence of sin. But I want to tell you some good news this morning. There's the covering for sin. The covering is found through God's Son Jesus Christ. Would you notice verse 30? Would you notice verse 30? They came to pass on the morrow. By the way, aren't you God God? Aren't you glad this morning God is a God of the second chance? And the God of the third chance and the fourth chance on the morrow. Then Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go unto the Lord. And would you notice this last part of verse 30? Peradventure, I shall make an atonement for your sins. Would you underline the word atonement? There's a covering for sin. An atonement means the sin will be paid in full. An atonement means there's a covering for the sin. It means an acceptable substitute will be given to pay the demand for that sin. That substitute comes in the way of the sacrifice of the life of an innocent victim. The blood of that innocent victim will be shed for that sin. For the Jews, it would be a lamb of the first year. For the Jews, it would be an unblemished animal. It would be a healthy animal. The innocent victim would have to give up its life. It would have to have its blood shed. It would give up its life entirely to satisfy the righteous demands of God for sin. I love what Moses says here. You've sinned a great sin you deserve the consequences. You deserve to die. You deserve to be punished. But he said, listen, I will make an atonement for you. I want you to understand, Moses in making his atonement wasn't saying he would take care of the sin, but the atonement would. And Moses pictures for us what Jesus Christ did for you and I. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father. He is righteous. He is holy. He is sinless. He's without sin. He's the only one that could satisfy the demands of God for us to the we can be declared righteous when we put our faith in God. You see, a sinful man cannot die for other sinful men because that will not atone for his death. But a sinless man, a man without sin, a man that meets the demands of God is the only acceptable substitute for the sins of man. And that sinless man who is the acceptable substitute, who gave his entire life, who sacrificed his life for sinners, is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the atonement for sin. He was the one that covered our sin through all of his blood. He's the one who washes away our sin through his blood. He is the one, the Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. He is the one, the Bible says, that Jesus Christ washes away and cleanses us from all our sins. He is the one whose, whose blood is spotless, whose blood is clean, whose blood is pure, whose blood is holy. He's the only one that could die for your sins and mine. He's the only one who could taste death for every man. He's the only one who could be the acceptable sacrifice because when Jesus died on the cross, when he breathed his last breath when all the blood that had to be shed was shed when God the Father had to turn his face from God the Son he said these words it is finished and when he said it was finished he was saying there God's righteous demands for sins have been paid in full praise the Lord you can keep on getting baptized it won't pay God's demands in full, and you can keep on trying to live a good life. It will not pay God's demands in full, and you can keep on giving your money to the church. It will not, it will not satisfy God's demands in full. But when the righteous man, our Savior Jesus Christ, our Advocate with the Father, the Mediator between God and man, took your place in mine, and He stepped into the gap, and the and the sacrifice for sin was made when He when He stretched out His arm and He put His legs out and they nailed Him to that cross and He died on that cross. Listen, He satisfied the righteous demands of God for you and. Not forever and forever our sins are paid in full praise god there's a covering for sin there's a covering for sin no matter how great your sin is let me tell you right there's the there's no sin so great that the greatness of the blood of jesus christ cannot cover it and there's no sinner so sinful that god god cannot save you and there's no sin so great that the blood of jesus christ cannot wash away those sins hey i'm thankful this morning there is so great a sin but thank god we have so great a savior it's so great a Jesus that died for every sinner. God's demands for sins are paid in full. Let me tell you this morning, you come to the Heritage Baptist Church, any church for that matter, and you think the pastor, the priest, or the cleric, whoever it may be, he's going to help you. Hey, every man, they're like me. We're mortal men, and we're sinners just like you. We cannot atone for your sins. We cannot make an atonement. But Jesus Christ, the righteous priest, the great high priest of God, made that de- to satisfy those demands for you and I. He took care of all that it's done it's finished you can be saved today you can get saved you can be born into God's family you can have your sins washed away you can be a child of God you can know for certain that today November 10th your name is st- will stay in the book of life as a son of God you can be saved today somebody wrap this up His covering gives you salvation. You can be saved from the judgment of hell. And it's not I hope so, it's I know so. Faith today in Jesus Christ concretely establishes for you being born into God's family, the forgiveness of your sins, the establishment of the fact that you receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you understand something this morning? Salvation is not a right. Salvation is not a demand. Salvation is the free gift of God. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That gift is a good gift, and it's a perfect gift. And it comes down from above, from the Father of lights. That's God, our Father, in whom there's no veribleness, neither shadow of turning. And God wants you to understand this morning, no matter what our sins may be, we have so great a sin. We're so great a sinner. We need to come to so great a Savior to be saved today from our sins. You know, today, you can be saved from your sins. Today, you can be born into the family of God. Today, you can settle that you're born into God's family. Today, you can make sure that heaven's your home. Don't leave today and say, I'm going to be the same way I came in. Leave today, born again, saved. Your sins washed away. Your sins atoned for. You remember in the ark, when Noah built the ark, the Bible says they covered it with pitch. Pitch was a dark, slimy, tar-like substance that in those days you'd cover wood up with it so that when it got into water, that no water would come in, that would sink the ship. It covered up all the holes. The word pitch is a very interesting word because the word pitch is the same word we get our word atonement from. They covered, the, they covered Noah's ark with the pitch. Can I tell you this morning? God knows all about our sins. He covers us with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the atonement that you receive. I'm going to invite you this morning, Christian friend. Are you bothered by your sin? I'm going to invite you this morning. There's forgiveness with God. If we confess our sins to Him, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then for any person here today who's not sure you're saved and going to heaven, I invite you this morning to call upon the Lord to save you. I invite you today to realize you have so great a sin, but we have so great a Savior and so great a salvation through Jesus Christ. He wants to save you. He's made that atonement. It's done for. The process is done. The performance is done. All you've got to do now is believe on Jesus Christ. And do what he says here, that if thou should confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thy heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's decision time. It's come to Jesus' time to receive the gift of salvation. In a moment, I'm going to give you that opportunity to trust Christ today. this is the first time you've heard this, or maybe you've heard this many times, this is the time if you've never trusted Christ, this is the day to make it it certain and make sure today that you're saved and your name stays in that book of life.